Welcome to the Wish Podcast. My name is Grant Bush. This is the third episode of a six-part series where we have interviewed guests who presented at the Wish Congress. And I'm Sean Kaplan. Today we have the pleasure of chatting to Megan Robertson. Welcome, Megan. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Sean, and thank you, Grant. This is a wonderful opportunity. For any of our listeners who might not have heard of you, uh, could you please just give us a bit of background? Sure. Um, I'm Megan Roberts. I'm a physiotherapist and I work in private practice in Johannesburg. And I just quite coincidentally came across a patient that was presented with sciatica in 2016. And it turned out that she had an undiagnosed head injury, which completely piqued my interest as it was basically a concussion masquerading as sciatica. And so I went and did a bit of research and it's totally changed my world. So I have done quite a bit of research myself and developed a protocol in South Africa to treat patients with concussion. And it's been incredibly exciting. So now I get the opportunity to talk at congresses and teach physios about concussion and educate patients. And it's been a wonderful adventure for me. Brilliant. So we uh, have in in the past had a tendency to go straight for the jugular. So I want to, I want to ease you in. So the first question would be, a little bit of background about concussion. Why is concussion a concern in sport? I think it's because it's been totally misdiagnosed in the past. And we have had in the past up to 10 to 12 adolescents, children dying a year playing rugby since 2012. And with the implementation of Smart rugby, we've managed to bring it down to one or two adolescents a year. Is that 10 to 12 in South Africa? In South Africa, yes. Yeah. And um, that's a huge improvement in outcomes. And the problem is there is no definitive test for concussion. It's a clinical diagnosis. So you can't see anything on an MRI or an x-ray. There's no blood test that can really show you what's happening. There's no blood test or test that you can say, oh no, now your brain's completely healed. You can go back to playing sport. So it's totally reliant on your clinical skills and who's looking at you. And they say at least up to 50% of concussions go undiagnosed because in 90% of the cases, there is no loss of consciousness. And the previous definition of of concussion was amnesia and loss of consciousness. And now we've realized that loss of consciousness is not anywhere in, even in the definition anymore. It's, it's more about amnesia and it's a transient change in mental condition. So that can be so subtle. It's so easy to be missed. And it's very important because a lot of the children or adolescents or adults hide the fact they're not feeling good because they know that if they have a diagnosis of concussion, we're going to pull them off the field. So it's very reliant on the patient being honest and you being equipped to do a good screen to figure out that the patient has concussion. It's actually a very interesting point. Uh, We had a a great chat with uh, Jane Thornton previously about a paper she was a co-author on about lower back pain in in elite and club Liverpool uh, rowers. And the paper was titled, uh, You Are the Best Liar in the World, because these patients, athletes would intentionally withhold the information that they had this pain and live with it and deal with it for very similar reasons of, of being excluded from the team, other types of pressure. Uh, so it's interesting to see that that's happening with concussion as well. Sports people love sport. So it's a punishment to take them away. And so the message that we're trying to give is that we don't want to keep you out of playing whatever sports you want to do. We want to get you back, but we want to get you back safely. And that's that's the message we need to put out there. That, a concussion has got a bit of doom and gloom around it that 
the media has hyped it up that you're very likely to get CTE, which is chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And the, the truth is at the end of the day, 80% of patients with concussion will resolve in 10 to 14 days. There's a, the 20% of the population that don't get better. And that's where we as the physios and the clinicians come in because that's when we can make a change and prevent the post-concussion syndromes. But it's, it is reliant on the patient being honest because you can only progress into the next stage if we can get a, a real feedback from the patient. Yes, there are clinical tests that we can do, but it's it's a, a battery of tests. It's not just a single test. So it's totally dependent on your clinical reasoning to decide whether or not the patient is fit to return. And that's quite a big responsibility for the clinician, especially as we get into more medical legal times. Like you, you don't want to be hauled over the coals later on to say, yes, but you said I was fine to go and play. So of course, as the medical person, you're probably going to err on the side of caution and try and hold them back a bit longer purely because you don't want to have any comeuppance later. So it's, it's a tough, it's a tough call. So I'm very grateful that I'm not the physician and I'm not the one who makes the, the final call. I just make recommendations. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. I want to ask a question where we can expand a little bit on a few of the things that you said. So what would the implications of a missed concussion be? And what, what are some of the, the side effects that, that you can have with a concussion? So it's very interesting in in a lot of the concussion patients I've seen, about 70 to 80% of the time, they have got vestibular or oculomotor fallout. That means that, and especially the pediatric population, their ability to read is terribly hampered. So sometimes what happens is you got concussed in the second term of rugby and then September rolls by and parents phone you panicked because their maths marks and their science marks have dropped to 40% lower than what they used to be and they have no idea why. And it really hampers their ability to read, their ability to concentrate, focus, their memory and concentration is impaired. Um, so that is a huge thing in terms of oculomotor fallout. In terms of vestibular symptoms, um, it has been proven that for almost six months post-concussion, your balance will be impaired. So you are much more likely to sprain an ankle, tear an ACL, um, to have some other physical injury, which is in a, in a professional population, that's dire. So they've already spent time off because of the concussion and now they're having to spend six months off because of an ACL repair. So, and that obviously then costs a lot of money, both to the professional team and to the player. So it's in everyone's best interest that we don't miss the concussion because we need to make sure that their their reflexes are just as good as what they were before, that their timing and their ability to time the tackle correctly is also correct because you don't want them going in at the wrong time and causing more damage. So balance is really, really important to look at after a concussion. And it was very interesting. I was reading a systematic review the other day and they said that in this, I think it was a 2018 systematic review, they said in terms of the average person doing a, a clinical assessment of concussion in about 80 to 90%, they just do a cognitive baseline test and only in about 23% do they actually do any balance or vestibular testing. And that's very poor. So I, I think the message that I would get is that we really, really have to make our assessments as thorough as possible. And we are very fortunate they're going to have the um, concussion symposium in Amsterdam in October this year. And so we're going to be developing the SCAT-6 and the SCOT, which is an office assessment tool. And 
the tests are getting way more complicated and 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 that's exactly what we need because concussion is so complicated and so the more feedback we can get the better outcomes we're going to get and the better chance we have of not missing a concussion and not sending them back to play too early how do you differentiate between balance being mediated by uh, other factors such as vision and proprioception you can't basically to some extent so your postural control system is made up of three balance centers so it's your vision your vestibular balance and somatosensory input. So that would be your neck for lack of a better word. So even if you have a, a whiplash and you make someone stand on a balance pad, they will sway even just for the fact that they have a stiff neck. It could be a lack of vestibular input. It could be that their neck is stiff. It could be that they had a previous sprained ankle that wasn't rehabilitated. So it's very difficult to tell. So the ultimate goal is you just rehabilitate it as fully as possible. If you think of your aged population, they have a huge balance problem. And maybe it's just to do the fact that their vision is becoming more impaired the older they get. Their ability to judge distances is less. They're also more deconditioned. And so they are more likely to fall. So the nice thing actually about this concussion rehab is that it's actually great for chronic neck pain, chronic migraines, your geriatric population. It basically all works on the same pathways. And so it's quite multi talented in, in that sort of sense that it's good for the average Joe. You can always improve. That's the thing. With our sedentary lifestyles, there's very few people that can't improve their balance. And so that also just highlights the need where possible to do baseline testing. Yes, completely. So cognitive testing is only one domain. It's, it's really useful to do a baseline test in terms of, especially for the pediatric population. There's an article by Creighton in 2017. And so he uses a mnemonic called Coach CV. And that basically is the seven domains of concussion. So the first would be cognitive. The second is oculomotor. Then it's affective, which is more your mood. Especially in the pediatric population, they often have anxiety and depressions set off from the concussion. Then there's your cervical spine. Then there's headaches. Then it's your cardiovascular involvement, which has become quite prominent in the literature recently, that you can sometimes get dysregulation of your cardiovascular system and your autonomic nervous system. So you would get an elevated heart rate. It's almost like your body goes a bit into fat and flight. So um, they get stuck in that. So you have to do the modified bulk protocol, which is a way to get patients back to exercise. So if you ask them to go straight back to exercise after a concussion, they just feel terrible as soon as their heart rate picks up too quickly. So you have to do something called submaximal threshold exercise. So let's say if you run and your heart rate gets to 160 beats per minute and you start to feel dizzy, then you're only allowed to exercise at 80% of that 160 beats per minute. And that's how we manage to rehabilitate those patients because we exercise them until their body feels safe. And then as they feel safer and the autonomic nervous system works beautifully again with the cardiovascular system, then we can progress them. And then the last thing was C, what's the CV. So V is for vestibular. And that's where they're saying up to about 71% of patients have fallout post-concussion. So that's a really great mnemonic for me to remember, coach CV. And I think if you've covered all those things in your assessment, you've done really well. When is it necessary for physio to get involved when you're treating a patient with concussion? 80% of patients will resolve beautifully all by themselves within 10 to 14 days. Children, generally, I'd give them a month before I start getting too panicked. So it all comes down to budget, basically. 
if your child is concussed at the weekend or you are concussed at the weekend, I would give you, you'd need to have your 48 hours of rest. So 24 hours if you're an adult and 48 hours if you're an adolescent or child. And then if you have the money, you would then be able to go and see a physio and they could do an assessment. And we would be able to pick up any vestibular oculomotor fallout within 48 hours. And so that would be wonderful because then we could kickstart your rehab and there's less likelihood of you getting a more post-concussion syndrome. But it's not always feasible. And in your communities and lesser socioeconomic areas, they don't have access to that. So then you would say, you give them the chance to say, well, give yourselves those 10 to 14 days. If after 10 to 14 days, you still don't feel yourself, then I would seek an opinion. But it really does come down to what you can afford and what your access is to medical care. But physios can get stuck in pretty much from 48 hours. What would that treatment entail? So it, it depends. For example, if you have, there are some predictive factors that you may not recover. So if, for example, you have had a history of migraines, a history of anxiety or depression, a history of ADHD, you are much more likely to have a protracted recovery. So in that population sample, I wouldn't expect you to get ready to, to be perfectly fine within 10 to 14 days. But that's what's something I have at the back of my head in mind. If, for example, you are dizzy at the time of your concussion, you have a sevenfold chance of having a protracted recovery. So it all depends on what your biggest symptom is. If you were to come see me after 48 hours, I would ask you, like, do you have headaches, dizziness, nausea, fogginess? You'd then take the symptom that is the most provocative and start with that, and then basically work your way through the rest of the tests. So remember, a concussion and whiplash is pretty much synonymous. You cannot really have a whiplash injury without shaking your brain to some extent, and even if it's just a subconcussive blow. So I generally start by just making sure that their neck feels a bit more comfortable, that they feel safe to move. Because if you're going to hold your neck protectively, you're then obviously not engaging your other senses to allow you to move effectively. So it, it really depends on what the patient's biggest symptom is. If they have got vertigo from a, a one specific type of vertigo, physios can treat as benign positional paroxysmal vertigo, BPPV, then you would start with that because they actually cannot function. The world is spinning so much that that has to be the first thing that you address. And that might be the only thing that I address in the first session. Um, and then give their body some time. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to get the crystals to fall back into the canals correctly to stop that feeling of um, vertigo. And so that would be my treatment outcome for that day. So it's it's really very much patient specific in terms of what their biggest need is to make them feel better. So Megan, you've, in a number of your answers, you've mentioned vestibular ocular rehab. Yes. Can you tell us a bit about that? What does that entail? There's a really, some very clever scientists in America and Canada. So Catherine Schneider and Anne Mucha, Mucha, I'm not too sure how you say it, M-U-C-H-A. They have done some really groundbreaking research. And so basically it's a screening tool with five tests. The one test is near point convergence. So basically like that pencil test where you have to bring your pencil to the nose. And so what you're trying to do is see if your eyes can accommodate to be convergent and divergent. Then the next test is saccades. That is being able to look quickly from left to right, left to right, or up, down, up, down. Then there's smooth pursuit, which is basically your ability to track a bird in flight or watch the tennis ball going across the screen from left to right on the court. That's smooth pursuit. Then there's something called your vestibular ocular reflex. So basically 
you would hold the pen still in front of your nose and you have to shake your head left and right and bob your head up and down. And the last test is visual motion sensitivity. So you'd get the patient to stand, hold their thumb out in front of them and rotate their trunk from side to side. So their thumb stays clear, but the background is blurry. And that would be synonymous to you driving in the car and being able to read a road sign while the world is passing by or just the fact that you don't get overwhelmed by the stimulation of all these things flashing past your face. So basically that screening tool of five tests, you then get a, a symptom response. So you ask them, does that test make you feel headachey, dizzy, nausea, nauseous or foggy? And so you basically can do a figure out out of 10, how provocative the tests are. And obviously the more provocative the tests are, the worse the vestibular oculomotor fallout is. And some people can have fallout of all five areas. Some people might only have one. So it's actually quite common that your um, vision fallout is more in the vertical plane. So it's basically reading from the top of the page down. And often I find in my students, that's what's really difficult. Or the fact that they can't look at the board and then look at their books. So that is, it's so much energy required to be able to do that, that they get so tired. So can you imagine it's that kid in the class who's being so disruptive and it's not really his fault. He's just so tired of having to concentrate that he plays up and he gets naughty. So often it's, if, if your child's had a concussion and the teacher's complaining that they're playing up and they're not normally that child, that would sort of ring alarm bells to say like, maybe there's something else going on if, if that was not their normal behavior. But often the kids that are getting disruptive in class, it's often because the poor child just can't actually read. And you do some very simple rehab and within two weeks, you have a different child again. It's quite interesting. Or the, the cricket player who can't judge the length of the delivery anymore. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, and when the ball's coming at that pace, it must be flipping frightening, actually. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> Sorry, so what does that rehab look like? It's basically graded exposure. So your brain is feeling threatened when you do that test. You basically do what makes you feel horrible. And so you might be able to first do it 10 times before you have a severe headache. And then you you carry on practicing twice a day for the next few days. And eventually you can do 15 reps before you get the same symptom onset. And eventually you don't get symptomatic by doing the test. And so that's basically what it is. So you then start in a quiet room with the patient and sitting. So you're basically taking out any external stimulus. They don't have to worry about balancing. Then you progress it to them being able to stand, do the exercises, then standing on one leg or standing on an unstable surface. And then you can turn the radio on really loud and pump the music. Or you can turn the lights on really brightly and um, make the stimulus a bit more overwhelming on your system. So, or you do it in a, in a classroom or you do it in a rugby stadium. Sometimes I ask the rugby players if they are not playing in, in that week's match to just do the warm up in the stadium, just to get used to the crowd noise and the fire fireworks going off and the, the bright lights of the stadium. And so it doesn't threaten their system so much because it's often just the threat value on your system that your brain recalls. So the last time I felt like this, something really bad happened. And so it's very difficult to, if you don't retrain them in that scenario, as soon as you put them into that very hectic situation again, their body just gets overwhelmed. So the Oculus stuff sounds Please correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds quite a lot like uh, what Dr. Cheryl Calder is doing with the iGym program. I haven't done enough into it, so I don't really know the answer, but I imagine it is very similar. Yes. 
So one of the common side effects with a concussion and even post-concussion syndrome, which we'll get to just now, is headaches. So I wanted to just talk a little bit about the headaches, the types of headaches you might get and the management of it. Okay, so headaches is quite a complicated topic because you have to be able to differentiate between a lot of different type of headaches. So it could be a tension type headache. It could be a post-traumatic headache. It could be a cervicogenic headache, which means that it just comes from the origin of your neck. It could be a medication overuse headache, which is actually quite interesting. So sometimes if you take too much of like a codeine-based medication, for example, you, you get almost headache induced from too much medication in your system. And so sometimes you have to withdraw the medication first and try and get the headaches under control. And then you've got migraines and migraines is a completely different animal. And the sadness is, is that if you've had a previous history of migraine, it's almost like your brain is a little bit more sensitive. So you are much more likely to get a migraine onset or post-traumatic headache onset after the concussion. So the job as the physio initially is to try and figure out which headache is which. And sometimes you can have more than one occurring at the same time. So it's pretty much just ruling out different tests to figure out which headache it is. So physios can't really address migraines. That's more the job of the neurologist. And um, sometimes we have to put the patients onto more chronic medication to try and calm that down because that's actually a pressure gradient change of your blood vessels of your brain going from vasoconstriction to vasodilation. And so that pretty much is very much a medication. Um, you, you need a medication to treat that, which I can't do in my practice. Um, but you need to be able to differentiate between the headaches. Otherwise, you're not going to get very far. So it's it's Patients even sometimes have to write a headache diary and figure out like, so today my headache is behind my eye. That could be more a cervicogenic headache, or I could be getting like a sharp shooting pain that shoots from different sides of my brain. That could be a cluster headache. So it's very much finding out where the headache is, what the intensity is, what the frequency is, and then trying to work backwards from there. And it's also important to make sure that you, you don't only listen to what the patient says, because a lot of people don't understand headaches and migraines. You know, a lot of people who say, I get migraines, yes. and then I say, oh, okay, when were you diagnosed? How do, tell me about that process. And then they just say, no, I get really bad headaches. Yes. Like, yeah. oh, okay. <laughs> so it's potentially not a migraine. Let's discuss the, the symptoms and everything. And uh, so the sort of differentiating between the headaches and knowing how to do that is very yes. important for physios because if we can't treat migraines and someone does come in with a migraine or without, we have to know like when is it appropriate to, to refer. refer. Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah, absolutely true. I just want to clarify, is a concussion headache the term for kind of any headache that occurs due to a concussion? Or what would then separate a concussion headache from other types of headache? Yes, you will have, for want of a better word, a concussion headache just in terms of the inflammation of the brain. But there can be other additional factors that are contributing or in addition to your concussion headache. For, yes, so... Um, so a concussion is basically a metabolic injury. So um, it's at a cellular level. And what happens is you have neurotransmitters that allow the message to jump over the synapse. And it should be a very specific, clear coded message. And with a big bang to your head, sometimes it causes a change in that coded message. And so it causes something called ionic flux. So you get a lot of um, influx of calcium and an efflux of potassium. And that influx of 
calcium is toxic to the brain. So it changes all your glucose metabolism of your brain as well. And so it causes like a brain fog for want of a better word and a slowing of the metabolism. So the synapses are not so effective. So everything slows down. So it's almost like your brain needs to go into a bit of hibernation to try and restore it. Then you have, you require a lot of ATP and ATP is an energy molecule. So you need a lot of ATP to try and get that ionic flux to reverse back again and to detox your brain. So the reason we ask patients to do absolutely nothing for 48 hours is to give your brain the best chance to try and heal itself. Because if you're looking at a screen or going for a run, that requires energy. So the energy that you should be using to normalize the chemistry of your brain, you're now using to complete an activity. And so that is what's prolonging the concussion recovery. So we're not trying to just be mean and say you have to do nothing for 48 hours. It's 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 imperative that you give your brain that maximum healing potential with the least amount of stimulus to get the best chance of healing. So and part of the concussion is it does cause inflammation. So in a very um, scientific way, you have something called glia and glia is a supportive cell of the neuron. So they are supposed to nourish and protect the neurons and help them to fire beautifully. And when you have a trauma or an inflammatory response over the 48 hours, the microglia change from being an anti-inflammatory protective state to a pro-inflammatory state. And that's really important because we need an inflammatory response to create healing. But sometimes the inflammatory response persists and the microglia forget to change back to their anti-inflammatory mode. And so effectively your body is then stuck in your sympathetic nervous system or your fight and flight response. And that is what sets off your persistent concussions. So it's vital that you do that 48 hours of rest. So Sometimes I'd see a patient and they got concussed two weeks ago and they're still symptomatic and I'll be right. Okay. So today you're going to do your 48 hours of rest and we start today. So we, today is day one of your concussion recovery. And I make them do that 48 hours, even if it is 10 to 14 days since the last time that they did have that concussion injury. But if they didn't give their brain that response, we have to give your brain the best opportunity to heal by itself. I don't know if that answers your question. Very well. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, on that topic of symptoms that persist and post-concussion syndrome, do we have any idea as to why that happens in some people and not others? Post-concussion syndrome is a bit of an umbrella term. So you can get cervicogenic post-concussion syndrome. You can get an exertional dysautonomia post-concussion syndrome. And so it's it's pretty much whichever pathway is, is most affected. As I said before, if it is if you've had a history of ADHD, migraines, or anxiety or depression, you are more likely to develop a post-concussion syndrome just because we feel that your brain is a little bit more sensitive than other people. And so that knock is just much more debilitating on your brain. I did a, a talk yesterday and it was very interesting. So I had a a rugby player that managed to get to day five of his return to play protocol. So day five is you've managed to get through all your agility training, your non-contact drills. And then day five is when you start contact and you have to be medically cleared technically to go into the contact rugby. So that would be your day six. And so what would happen is that he managed beautifully up until that point. But as soon as he had to go down to tackle in the scrum, he started getting dizzy. So no one could really figure out why was this guy not being able to get past day five when 
technically everything else looked good. And he had his three weeks post-concussion. And so what it turned out was, is that he had developed some anxiety in his system as a result of the concussion. And it's a, it's a physiologic anxiety. It's not an emotional anxiety. So your brain is so cleverly wired that you've got lots of cross pathways between your vestibular nuclei working into your limbic system, which is your amygdala, which is your your fear and emotive centers of your brain. That also kicks into your stress activation response, which is your hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Then you've also got correlations with your cardiovascular system, which is increased heart rate, increased blood pressure. What technically could happen with this ch- with this patient is that if his fear response of his amygdala is too strong, it's almost overpowering any ability for him to take on any of the new vestibular rehab. So he almost can't, it's competing in his brain. So you have to calm down the one area before you can get the vestibular rehab to kick in. So in that sense, we had to give him beta blockers. So what that does is that normalizes his heart rate variability. It then helps him with anxiety before he's sleeping and a bit of performance anxiety. So we could calm down his HPA axis normalizes cardiovascular system, make his limbic system feel safe. And only at that point could you then work on his vestibular system to get him to rehabilitate properly because there's no more competition in the brain. And he almost has like a finite amount of energy. And if it's all focused on survival, vestibular rehab is not really important to his brain at that stage. And so in answer to your question, I think it's it's very complicated. The point is, If your vestibular and ocular rehab is not working, it's very easy to label the patient as a yellow flag and say, oh, well, he just doesn't want to get better or he doesn't want to do the rehab or maybe she's not doing it. I think often there's a real physiological stress response in your system. So there's something called allostasis. Allostasis is your ability of your body to keep homeostatic balance in your body through anticipated or perceived needs or demands on your system in the with within the organism and within the environment. And that basically is a balance between your load and your capacity. So I think sometimes with patients that are getting your more post-concussion syndromes, the the load that their bodies are having to withstand is too much for their than their capacity. So for example, this student suddenly had exams coming up. He was under pressure to return to play rugby at the weekend, which he really wanted to do, but his body almost didn't let him. So his body was giving us all the right answers for why he wasn't getting better. We just had to narrow it down and figure out why. So I think it's it's very complicated with your post-concussion syndromes. And I think the more research that we're getting is that there are so many systems involved that you actually need a team of super specialists. So I sometimes refer to myself as the call center operator (laughs) because it's almost like the patient comes to me and I go, how can I direct your call? So I need a cardiologist. I need a psychiatrist. I need an endocrinologist. I need a neurooptometrist, a neurologist, a sports physician, an occupational therapist. There are so many players involved and we have to work as a team to be able to get this done. In my slides yesterday, I said at the end that the great news is that concussion is treatable, but my disclaimer was, it's just way more complicated than I ever imagined. And the more I get into it, the more complex I actually see that it is. We've actually been talking quite a lot about the biopsychosocial model and uh, the different components of it that people seem to focus on. And it seems like what happens when these athletes or, or 
individual patients present with these uh, symptoms after however long it has been, and they should, in theory, be fine. There's a kind of reductive, dismissive reasoning going away from the bio and saying, yes. there's nothing biological wrong. It has to be psychosocial. Yes. And uh, I, I don't suppose it's very easy to get a, a psychological concussion, if that's even possible in any way. Well, do you know, you can get psychogenic dizziness, for example. So the the dizziness comes from an anxiety in their system. So it's not, he's not telling himself that he's anxious or telling himself, sure, I must really get dizzy so I don't have to go into the scrum. It's such a reactive response of your body to protect you, to stop you from going into that position. I think it's more frustration from the healthcare worker that they don't know what to do and they're feeling helpless. And so they just, it's easier to blame it on the patient and say, well, it must be in their head. And um, I think we have to be very careful about that. I think our patients are really telling the truth. And a lot of the time they are suffering and especially with concussion patients is because they look totally fine. And a lot of them will be like, people just don't understand. Like they tell me that I should be better by now. And why am I not doing that? And why am I not playing rugby anymore? And why am I not getting 80% for my tests? And, and I just, I can't do it. And it's not through lack of trying. And there was a great paper by Lusa in 2000. And he said, it's suffering, not pain that brings your patient into into your rooms. And we need to be very mindful of what the patient's goals are and, and what they need to feel like they are being productive in life and, and really focus on that. And we need to be a great support system for them. And that's why I think we need a lot of open communication. And unfortunately, I think with the world that we live in, everyone's so busy and no one has time. And so to try and get a team of specialists together to sit together and have a conversation about someone, it's, it's really difficult to find that time. So it's quite easy for the patient to get lost in the system. And I think if, if you were in a, like a government system, I think it's nearly impossible to, to get to the bottom of those ones because people don't have the time and they don't have the resources. So it really is huge. And I think it's something that I really try hard in my practice to, to give them the benefit of the doubt and to find some resolution at the end of the day. And it's not easy. It's, it's very draining for you as the clinician as well, because you are a bit stumped sometimes and you're trying your best to figure out what's wrong. And unfortunately, concussion actually is an incredibly new diagnosis. It's only really been getting literature for the last 10 years. So for example, it's fascinating. There's a, a lymph drainage system of your brain called the glymphatic system. And that's really important in concussion. And that's why sleep is so important because your brain only really detoxes while you're in non-REM sleep. So if you are awake a lot of the time, you can't detox your brain, which can predispose you to more long-term concussion. And the interesting thing is they only discovered the glymphatic system in 2012. I mean, that is, that is phenomenal. Like, how did we miss that? And there's so much we don't know. And I think that's what makes concussion so exciting, but also so awful for these poor patients because there's so much we don't know and we, we learning all the time. And so unfortunately they're part of our journey and we learning with them. So, I mean, in the past we used to, people used to tell people who were concussed, don't fall asleep. You know, I mean, that was, that was, one of the things, I think it was a patient of mine who, who said that uh, this was years ago when he yes. was in high school, he was concussed and the paramedic said, don't worry about it. It should get better on its own. Just go home, play video games and don't sleep. Oh, awesome. And <laughs> yeah, and that's, uh, that's, uh, that was his, his advice. The, the reason they said don't sleep was because we can't always tell the difference between if there is a concussion 
or a bleed on the brain. If there is a bleed on the brain, they might get diminishing consciousness, which we won't see if they are sleeping. So the advice generally is, if you get concussed, go to a medical professional, like um, a sports physician is generally the best because sometimes the GPs and the emergency department aren't so clued up on concussion. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to just rule out that there is no brain bleed because then they could potentially die in their sleep. And so as soon as we know that it is purely a concussion, then the best thing they can do is sleep for as long as they like. So I always say to those parents, just let them sleep. Don't tell them they need to get up because it's now 10 o'clock in the morning. Your brain is doing its work when it's sleeping. So it is important not to let them sleep post head injury if you aren't sure that it's not just a concussion. Can you tell us a little bit about second impact syndrome? Okay, so second impact syndrome is basically only been seen in the pediatric population. Some people still say that it is a bit of a, a myth and they don't believe in it. So what happens is I was talking about the metabolism of the brain earlier and how it takes 10 to 14 days for that brain to detox. So if you have a second hit to the head before that metabolism has normalized, it can set off something called second impact syndrome, which is sudden death in the athlete. So basically it's a second hit to the head before resolution of the first injury. They have only had cases in the children and, and adolescent population that it has happened to. And that's why we are very much erring on the side of caution that a child has to have 48 hours of rest. It's very unlikely that they'll get back onto the sports field within two to three weeks after their concussion, because we really want to give their brain optimal time to heal. So I did have a, a 16 year old boy who was probably the closest I've seen to second impact syndrome. So he had had three hits to the head within three weeks and he was advised not to go back onto the rugby field. And he managed to convince his mom. It was just the last 10 minutes of the game and it was the last game with the matrix. And so he went onto the field and got a terrible knock to the head. And he then went into hospital and had a stroke on his one side. So it was a, a long, long healing process. He was off school for a term. He had to have occupational therapy, speech therapy, physiotherapy. He had to relearn how to walk. His, he was a, a patient with ADHD. So his, his Ritalin had to be almost doubled or, or tripled to help him to concentrate. Yeah, so it, it was a really, really long journey. And he was very lucky not to die. So it was a big wake-up call for me. And I think for him even. I mean, his first question was, when can I go back to play rugby? And I was like, um, never. <laughs> but it was, it was incredible to see how the brain could shut down so quickly. And within a year, he's back to doing athletics and he was doing hurdles and his balance was amazing. And he was an incredibly good athlete. So his body managed to make a phenomenal recovery, but sure, it was a long, a long, hall to get there. And it was very intensive rehab and a lot of stress on everyone involved. Surely the later on in a match that you have a, a collision incident, you're less likely to be able to move away from it because of a delayed reaction speeds now that you are suffering fatigue. Yes. Yeah, so that's part of it is that your balance is off. Your reflexes are slow. You probably can't see the ball as well as you thought you could. So yeah, you have vestibular ocular motor fallout. You 
maybe cardiovascularly you're not as on top form as you as you were you may be a bit deconditioned you might have a bit of neck pain and so you don't go into that tackle as well as you would do if you're feeling optimal there's so many variables involved you, you can't actually tell so with the pediatric and adolescent population, we err on the side of caution and we keep them off for as long as possible. And, and the reason is, is because I think it's until the age of 13 or 14 is your neurons are unmyelinated, which means they have no insulation. And that only happens later in your brain as you develop. So any hit to their heads is way more traumatic on their brains. They have no protective shell around it. So their recoveries are longer and it's more likely to set off. There's a huge effective response to concussion. And so a lot of the pediatric population develop anxieties and depression post-concussion. And that's something we really, really want to prevent. It's not nice for a child to develop that at such a young age. They don't have the skills to cope and it's very traumatic for everyone. Megan, thank you so much for your time. We are very grateful. If listeners wanted to hear more from you or read more about uh, your work and what you do, where can they look? Um, I have a website. It's www.concussionheadquarters.com. Uh, I um, do do a few courses for to teach physiotherapists how to treat concussion. I would love to get involved in schools because I really think that there's two parts to the concussion program. It's return to learn and return to play. We've John Patricius has really knocked it out the park with his return to play protocols. And I think if we can get the return to learn protocols in place in schools, I think it'll be really helpful for our children. So I would really like to get involved in schools and educate staff and parents about what happens to children's brains when they are concussed and how we can facilitate optimal healing. Yeah. And otherwise I work in a private practice in Craig Hall and I'm very happy to treat anyone who needs it. Can you tell us a bit about the courses you, you run, like when you do them and how expensive they are and is it online or is it in person? Or For physios, if you're a member of the South African Physio Society, you get free access to Physiopedia. And I have done a concussion course on Physiopedia, which you could do for free. I think it's about eight hours. I do run weekend courses they're about 10 hours for the course. And so we do about six hours of theory and four hours of practical because I'm very, very um, passionate about getting your handling right and being able to do it correctly. So I, I want you to be able to implement it the next day in practice. I haven't got any lined up just yet. I did do a few online courses over COVID. I'm very happy to get more involved in that. So yeah, I think I love sharing knowledge about concussion. I think there's so much we can do to prevent post-concussion syndrome. So earlier intervention is key. The more we have awareness of it, the best chance are for our patients not having to have persistent concussion. So I'm very happy to share knowledge with anyone who's interested.